During this season of Lent, we have been exploring together a series of metaphors that the Gospel of John uses to talk about who Jesus is and what he's doing. So far, we've heard that Jesus is the bread of life, the light of the world, the door, the gate for the sheep, the good shepherd, and the resurrection and the life. And I have been waiting for weeks for us to get to the metaphor that we are going to look at this morning because it is one of the most misquoted, cherry-picked verses in the whole Bible. It has been presented in ways that are so divisive that people either cling to it like a lifeline or reject it altogether. And if you know me at all by now, you are going to guess that I think there's a third way for us to approach it. So let's get a little context. Because remember, looking at these metaphors has us following a theme in the gospel and not so much the storyline itself. And where we are in the story matters a lot this morning. Since last week, when we heard the story of the raising of Lazarus, important things have happened. You may remember that the raising of Lazarus was the last straw for the religious leaders when it came to Jesus. They were afraid that someone who could raise the dead would also raise up a Jewish rebellion against the Roman occupation and cause the destruction of the temple and of Jewish society. So that faction of the Jews decided that Jesus had to be stopped. They said, it is better for one man to die for the people, hint, hint, than to have the whole nation destroyed. Soon after that, it is once again Passover. Jesus triumphantly enters Jerusalem, which we'll talk about in a couple weeks. See, we're jumping around. And then, after a few more public speeches, he withdraws with his disciples. The Gospel of John does not have a story of a Last Supper as we are used to hearing it. Instead, John tells the story of what happens before supper. Jesus washes the disciples' feet and gives them the command to love one another as he has loved them. Judas leaves them. And then Jesus predicts that Peter, the leader of the disciples, is going to betray Jesus when it really counts. And then Jesus talks for four whole chapters. This is right after the prediction of Peter's betrayal. This is the beginning of Jesus' long speech. I'm going to read you chapter 1, or I'm sorry, chapter 14, verses 1 through 17, and I'm going to just read it this morning. I'd like for you to just listen instead of reading it on the screen, okay? Here we go. Let not your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and also trust in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way to where I'm going. No, we don't know, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you are going, so how can we know the way? 
Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to the Father except through me. If you'd really known me, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and we will be satisfied. And Jesus replied, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you trust that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does his work through me. Just trust that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least trust because of the work that you've seen me do. I tell you the truth. Anyone who trusts in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works because I am going to be with the Father. You can ask me for anything in my name and I will do it so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Yes, ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. If you love me, obey my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. She is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive her because it isn't looking for her and doesn't recognize her, but you know her because she lives with you now and later will be in you. These are the words of God for all people. Thanks be to God. Did you hear the metaphor that is so ill-used? Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father if not by me. And that's really exactly what it says. There's no word juggling that I can do here to change that. Which is fine, because the words themselves are not the problem. It's how people use those words that creates a problem. People use these words in arguments. Our Christian ancestors who wanted to merge political and religious power used these words as trump cards. Our Christian ancestors who thought that eternal hell was worse than any hell they could impose used those words to force conversions on native people around the world. Our Christian ancestors used those words as a threat while holding a sword and as coercion while holding out food. Christians today do many of the same things. We do many of the same things. These words are used in support of our own interpretation of whoever Jesus is and whatever we think he offers. Many of us, many of us have done that. And even if we haven't, our spiritual ancestors have. This is part of the history of our tradition and also part of our present. It happens and it happened. And the problem is that these words as proof or threat or coercion is completely opposed to the way that Jesus was using them. Let's look again at the context. Jesus starts by saying, let not your hearts be troubled, which you wouldn't say unless the person to whom you are speaking did have a troubled heart. 
Trust God and trust me. This is both a statement of fact and a directive. You do trust God, so trust God. And you do trust me, so trust me. And finally, this statement of Jesus being the way and the truth and the life is made in response to a question from a troubled and fearful disciple. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus' response, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father if not by me. That is not a point-counterpoint argument. That is a word of comfort to a loved one. That is a pastoral response. Jesus is not trying to prove that he's the best. He's just reminding his most beloved friends and followers of who he is. Because right after this, he says, if you do know me, and you do, then you know my father also. From now on, you've seen him and you know him. Let not your hearts be troubled. Where I am, there you will be also. Friends, for me, that changes this statement completely. This statement is not made by a power-hungry conqueror. It is made by someone who was willing to be conquered. This is a declaration of love, not a declaration of force. And it's also completely in line with everything else we've heard in this gospel right from the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God in the beginning. Everything came into being through the word, and without the word, nothing came into being. What came into being through the word was life. The word became flesh and made his home among us. We have seen his glory, glory like that of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. As the law was given through Moses, so grace and truth came into being through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. But God, the only Son who is at the breast of the Father, has made God known. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, who makes God known. To know Jesus, to trust Jesus, to abide with Jesus is to know the Father. Not God in general, but this very personal manifestation of the perfect parent. There's no other formula to learn. There's no secret knowledge to gain. There's no passwords to say. There's no hoops to jump through. There's nothing else that we have to figure out. If we trust Jesus, then we know the Father, and we have what we need to experience eternal, full, transcendent life. That's it. We already have what we need. There's another part of this passage that is not a Jesus metaphor, but is also often misquoted. It's the part where Jesus says, I tell you the truth, anyone who trusts in me will do the same works as I have done and even greater works because I'm going to be with the Father. You can ask for anything in my name and I will do it so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Yes, ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. I mean, that's clearly not right. 
I'm pretty sure I've never done any works that were greater than what Jesus did. And I've asked for plenty of things I thought in Jesus' name, and they didn't happen. And I'm sure you've had the same experience. Now, I fully realize that what I'm about to suggest to you is not going to satisfy some of you, and that's okay. This is a hard thing to wrestle with. I'm not going to try to wriggle out of it, and I'm not going to tell you that it didn't happen because it wasn't God's will, or you didn't have enough faith, or you didn't ask in the right way. I've never seen those responses be particularly helpful to people who were wrestling with this. I think we can get a different perspective on this if we consider what are the works of the Father and the Son as described in the Gospel of John. Let's work with what we've got. Now, you know the answer to this because we talked about it earlier this year. We want works to mean miracles, don't we? Healings and abundant provision and people being, uh, being able to see who couldn't see before and people being raised from the dead. In our case, the end of pandemics and wars and oppressions and political stupidness on both sides of the aisle. Friends, that is not what the works of the Father and the Son are in the Gospel of John. Remember the signs? They were never a miracle just for the sake of a miracle. The miraculous signs that Jesus did always had a larger point, which was to spark trust in God through Jesus. Trust in the Father through the Son to use those relational categories that Jesus uses. See, I think when we try to use this verse, we are usually only asking for the miracle for its own sake. Those kinds of works in and of themselves are never the point for Jesus, but they're usually the point for us. Jesus does the miracle so that people will better understand God. We want to do the miracle so that we get the thing. And then we say we will give glory to God after the fact if the miracle happens, right? I mean, honestly, we want the thing. The problem is that even if we got it, the miracle would never quite satisfy us because humans are silly creatures with short memories. If we get what we want this time, then we're happy. But if we don't get what we want next time, we're out. Unless we have a relationship of active trust with the God of the miracle, the miracle itself will never be enough for us. We see that pattern in the Gospel of John. Some people see a miracle and it sparks a deeper active trust in the one who did the miracle. Some people see a miracle and they just want to see another one, like some kind of Divine Vegas show. So what is Jesus talking about here? What are the works of the Father that Jesus does that we can do as well? Well, according to Jesus, when he's talking about being the bread of life back in chapter 6, the work of God is to trust in the one whom God has sent. That's verbatim, chapter 6, verse 29. The work of God that Jesus is carrying out is making disciples, sparking active trust in people, and our work is to trust Jesus. You're so sick of hearing this by now in the Gospel of John, but this is what it is over and over and if we are going to do the work of Jesus, then that work is to live lives of such powerful trust that others are led into trusting that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life for them, 
as well. To live lives of such powerful trust that others are led into trusting. That's the works. Sometimes those works might defy the laws of nature. I don't know. Sometimes our lives of such radical trust may lead to things that defy the laws of nature. It's possible. But they don't have to. Because the world is desperately in need of Christians who will testify to our trust in God through ordinary lives that are radically progressive, inclusive, humble, bold, and loving. Miracles that defy the fallen nature of humanity may be even more astounding than those that defy the laws of nature. Miracles that defy the fallen nature of humanity may be even more astounding than those that defy the laws of nature. And what's so wild is that we can do that without Jesus in the flesh. This system was never designed to need Jesus to be with us in person. We want that. The disciples wanted that. They were terrified of his leaving. But Jesus never planned to stay because he knew we didn't really need him to. Jesus always intended that we could do this once he was gone. Apparently, the stories that we have about him are enough. The testimony of the lives of other Jesus followers, past and present, are enough. And according to the very end of this passage, the spirit who abides within us and among us is enough. We don't need Jesus to do it for us because Jesus does it through us. It is the spirit, non-gendered personal noun, so we can use she as a pronoun. It is the spirit, the advocate, the one called alongside to help, who empowers us to do the things that Jesus did and more. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we become Jesus in the world. He doesn't need to be here because we are here. Trusting God in miraculously radical ways in our daily lives. Proving with our actions that for us, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. May we be so progressive and inclusive, humble, bold, and loving that others who need to be rescued from the ways of the world discover that Jesus is the way for them as well. Amen. As Brian comes forward this morning, I want to offer you a little bit of time for reflection. So you may want to settle in your seats. You may want to close your eyes to block out distractions or you may want to find something to rest your focus on. And I want to ask you this morning, 
to consider where are you already doing the works of God? Where in your life are you being radically progressive, inclusive, humble, bold, and loving? Where in your life are you doing things that you feel are beyond you? Where it's clearly the Spirit of God that keeps you going, getting up out of bed every day in the midst of whatever you're struggling with. That is your miracle, which testifies to others that the God you trust is living and active. The second question is, where are you being called? Where are you feeling drawn to do something and you're resisting it because you're afraid you can't? The thing that makes you a little nervous when it pops into your head. The message for you today is that Jesus is telling you, you can. I'll pray a closing prayer for us. Jesus, way, truth, and life. We accept the callings that you're giving us and we trust you. Amen.